It's a delight to look into your faces once again, brethren. Believe it or not, your faces can bring delight to a brother in Christ. And the Lord has been gracious to us in our previous sessions, but we don't want to rest upon past blessings. So let's look to him in a conscious expression of our felt dependence. Let's pray together. Our Father, we would bring to mind the words of our Lord Jesus, who said, without me, you can do nothing. And we confess that we are slow to take those words at face value. So often we have sallied forth into spiritual exercises without a deep awareness of our utter inability to do anything profitable to our souls apart from the present operations of your grace and of the work of your Holy Spirit. And so on the threshold of another session, we would confess our felt awareness of need and ask that according to your promise, you would give us the Holy Spirit in copious measures this morning, that as we wrestle with things relative to this wonderful privilege of preaching the Word of God, that we may know your Spirit's help, illuminating our minds, bringing conviction where necessary, bringing encouragement where that is in order. Lord, our hearts are open and we say with young Samuel, Speak, Lord, for your servants hear. Hear then our cry and come to us in our need, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this hour, brethren, we're going to continue our consideration of the preacher in relationship to himself in the act of preaching. And our present sphere of focus is that of the preacher and his vocal powers. In the previous lecture, I sought to establish two things. Number one, the relative importance of the vocal powers of the preacher. And I sought to state as clear as I know how that in relationship to your life, your vocal powers are of secondary importance. And in relationship to the content of your sermons, your vocal powers, again, are of secondary importance. But of all the things that actually go into the act of preaching itself, your vocal powers are of primary importance. And then secondly, I tried to impress you with the moral necessity of concern for and the conscious cultivation of your vocal powers. I sought to bring to bear upon your conscience that moral monitor within the pressure of the golden rule the pressure of the mandate for maximum edification, and the pressure of general revelation. In this lecture, I have two central concerns. This would be number three in this whole area of concern about our vocal powers, having considered the relative importance, the moral necessity of concern and practical activity in this area. Now, thirdly, 
to identify the various elements of our vocal powers and to persuade you that not one of them should be ignored, uncultivated, or poorly regulated in the act of preaching. And then fourthly and finally, my second concern in this lecture will be to suggest some practical guidelines for the actual cultivation of your vocal powers. So we take up together then the various elements of our vocal powers identified and described. And my working thesis in this section of the lecture is twofold, a negative and a positive. I would state negatively, our concern is such that we should think in terms of the fact that none, none of the God-given dimensions of our vocal powers should be omitted or poorly regulated in the act of preaching. That's stating my thesis negatively. Flipping it on its head, I state it positively that all of the God-given dimensions of our vocal powers ought to be wisely employed in the service of proclaiming God's truth. Now, in passing, let me say I have no intention to seek to identify all of the parts of our God-given physiology that are involved in the act of preaching. Different writers on this subject list a differing number of organs and bodily parts which ought to be fully engaged in all effective public speaking. One author I read named as many as 30 organs and bodily parts that are functioning when we speak publicly as we ought to speak. However, no list of such organs and bodily functions involved in the discipline of public speaking would omit the stomach muscles, the diaphragm, the lungs, the larynx, the nasal cavities, the tongue, the teeth, and the lips as being essential parts of our physiology, no one would treat this subject with anything approaching any responsible thinking and omit any one of those parts of our physiology. So assuming the above, that we will be concerned to bring to play the stomach muscles, the diaphragm, the lungs, the larynx, the nasal cavity, the tongues and the teeth, I want us to move on and to identify the various aspects or qualities of our vocal capacities and powers. While not claiming any technical or professional expertise in this field, the things I have gleaned from my reading, observation, and experience lead me to identify at least seven elements that constitute, I believe, at least a somewhat adequate identification and description of our various vocal powers. What are they? Well, as we identify these various aspects, I begin with the most obvious, volume or force. In addressing this aspect of the use of our voices, I can do no better than to quote R.L. Dabney, who wrote the following words. Speech 
is addressed to the ear. A very simple, obvious truism. Its first requisite is, therefore, audibility. We must so utter it, that is, speech, as to be heard. This simple remark will suggest to your good sense the rule as to the general gauge of loudness. The voice should always be loud enough to be heard throughout the audience, and except in animated passages, it should not be much louder. To secure that result, it is well to direct the eyes generally toward the farthest circle of hearers, for the voice will naturally adjust itself to the distance of those we address. This rule is useful also in guarding us against the distraction of our attention and the loss of our thread of thought by noting too closely any individual countenance or trivial event, trivial event in the audience near us. Now, obviously, Dabney speaking as one who was not in any way dreaming that a man would have voice assistance. If the person on the last row is going to hear you, you must have sufficient vocal force to bring the sound to him so that sound comes to your audience comfortably. They are neither reaching in order to try to get the sound, nor are they driven back by too much sound. The sound of our voices should come to them comfortably. The excessively sustained loud volume of some men not only hurts the ears of their listeners, but it also dulls the mind and the spirit to any real impression of the truth that ought to be pondered. I gave you the illustration from my own experience yesterday about that train cutting me in half in a Midwestern town by the fourth night I slept through both the vibration, the horn of the train, and the sound of its passing. Broadus wisely and a bit sarcastically remarks, quote, Long passages of bawling, B-A-W-L-I-N-G, long passages of bawling, relieved only by occasional bursts into a harrowing scream, are in every sense hurtful to all concerned. And to that I hope we can say amen. Likewise, the excessively sustained whisper is irritating and dulls the mind. Need I say more? A well-placed and sufficiently vocally sustained stage whisper which reaches the person on the last row may be an effective rhetorical device, but not this excessively sustained whisper that is not heard by any except those in the first two rows. The stage whisper of a consummate actor is heard with clarity by the last person in the last row of the upper gallery in the theater. My good friend Jack Seaton once wrote an article in his church paper entitled, Please, Preacher, Don't Whisper. Jack didn't acknowledge it at the time, but he had the beginnings of 
presby acusis, old age hearing loss, and he found it so irritating when preachers dropped their voices beyond the level of audibility. God says to the prophet Isaiah, cry aloud, lift up your voice like a trumpet. And our Lord, on that last day, the great day of the feast, stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, anyone in the temple would have heard every word of our Lord's gracious invitation. Listen to Spurgeon, who in his own inimitable way addresses this matter. Always speak so as to be heard. I know a man who weighs 16 stone. A stone is 14 pounds. This dude weighed about 225 pounds. And in that day, whereas now that's not even big enough to be an outside uh, linebacker or uh, defensive back, but back in those days, that's one big dude, 225 pounds, and ought to be able to be heard half a mile who so graciously is so graciously indolent, think of it, he's gracelessly indolent that in his small place of worship you can scarcely hear him in the front of the gallery. What is the use of a preacher whom men cannot hear? Modesty should lead a voiceless man to give place to others who are more fitted for the work of proclaiming the messages of the king. So we have the matter of volume, and we'll have more to say about that later. And then another faculty of our vocal apparatus is what I'm calling compass or range. This terminology refers to the ability of the human voice to go from highs to lows and back to middle tones again. Compass or range. Generally speaking, the upper range most often expresses emotional excitement and the lower range generally expresses the more somber or reflective thoughts. Here are two waiting rooms in a hospital. In one of them, there's a father. His wife is in the delivery room. And for some reason, he's not in there. Maybe he's just skittish about the whole process. Maybe can't stand a sight of blood, whatever. For the sake of my illustration, he's in the waiting room wondering, is it going to be a boy, going to be a girl? He bypassed uh, having the ultrasounds tell him what they thought it was. He was old-fashioned like some of us, and he's going to wait till he's born to know what he has. And through the door, the doctor bursts, saying, John, you have a son. And in the excitement and enthusiasm and something joyful, the voice naturally goes up. In another room, there is another person who's waiting. He's waiting for a doctor to come and tell him what he found when he opened up his wife. And alas, when this man's wife was opened up, a massive malignant tumor is found. The doctor comes through the door and says, Mr. Jones, I'm sorry. I have terribly weighty sad news. What happens in conveying something sad and somber? 
the voice naturally comes down in its compass or its range. Generally speaking, excitement goes up, somber news, it goes down. And then aligned to this matter of compass or range is the voice has a capacity for melody. And this refers to the actual movement from one range to another. It's the exact opposite of the old computerized voice in which everything was a flat monotone. You have now entered into this computer train. It will stop at terminals A, B, C, D, and there is no inflection whatsoever, no melodic movement of the voice. And listen again to what Spurgeon has to say with those who do not recognize the capacity of the human voice for melody and bring it to the service of the gospel. I quote him, What a pity that a man who from his heart delivered doctrines of undoubted value in language the most appropriate should commit ministerial suicide by harping on one string when the Lord had given him an instrument of many strings to play upon. Alas, alas, for that dreary voice. It hummed and hummed like a mill wheel to the same unmusical tune, whether its owner spoke of heaven or of hell, eternal life or everlasting wrath. It might be, by accident, a little louder or softer, according to the length of the sentence, but its tone was still the same, a dreary waste of sound, a howling wilderness of speech, in which there was no possible relief, no variety, no music, nothing but horrible sameness. And then he goes on to amplify that in using the illustration of the Olean harp that swells through all the chords and then presses upon us to recognize that unless there is some unusual impediment, a very unusual thing, God gave us speech faculties that can incorporate melody into their use. And then the fourth Capacity, faculty, aspect of the human voice is emphasis. In this, I'm referring to the coloring or the highlighting of words. It may be done by a combination of volume, of pitch, of pitch, or of pacing. Let me illustrate how we get an entirely different meaning. I'm going to take the first line from the little nursery rhyme, Mary had a little lamb. Mary had a little lamb. It wasn't Joan. It wasn't Pat. It was Mary. Mary had a little lamb. Her lamb's dead. Somebody stole it. We're emphasizing the past tense. Mary had a little lamb. Mary had a little lamb. Not two, not three, just one. Mary had a little lamb. It wasn't a big lamb, it wasn't a fat lamb, it was a little lamb. Mary had a little lamb. 
not a goat, not a puppy, not a cat. And that's all with those three factors. Just coloring the words by volume, by pitch, and by pacing. And in each case, I'm saying something different, though I'm using precisely and exactly the same words. Now, who gave us a capacity to do that? And who gave men the capacity to recognize when it's done and to derive the different meanings, God or the devil? God did. And he gave it to us men to bend that faculty to the proclamation of the gospel. He's given us an apparatus that not only can bring to its service volume, compass or range, melody, but emphasis, and then fifthly, distinctness. By this I mean giving each part of every word its due pronunciation and enunciation. I'm referring as well to the separation of words by pronouncing all of the consonants Words must not piggyback one another in garbled, indistinct succession, often by slurring the consonants. That's often the way it is done. Listen to Dabney, who was obviously irritated when he heard men doing this. There's an element more essential to audibility than loudness. This is distinctness. By distinctness, I mean these traits, clearness or purity of tone, due deliberation or separation of the syllables, and especially careful articulation. The public speaker must never move so rapidly as to huddle his syllables. While he observes due accent and emphasis, he must give space for the distinct enunciation of both the vowels and consonants of all unaccented syllables. There is a tendency growing in this our material age to a curtness and hurry of enunciation which threatens to destroy the melody and the very identity of the English as a spoken Language. Now, if he said that toward the end of the 1800s, what in the world would he say were he to appear in our day? I go on to make the statement that anyone committed to speak with unmistakably clear distinctiveness will soon find out that he must bring to the service of public speaking not only his tongue and his larynx, but his teeth and his lips. The preacher who is properly using teeth and lips will most likely find that there is a modicum of spitting associated with effective public speaking. In fact, I've coined a little aphorism which goes like this. He who speaks well in public speaks with spit. And I had to chuckle at myself as I was going over this manuscript again this morning, went over it last night before I went to bed, again early this morning. And I read that paragraph. The sun was coming in over my desk, and there were little pearls picking up the rays of the sun 
pearls of Albert Martin's spit, because I could not pronounce lips without spit, and I couldn't say the preacher without spit. He who speaks well in public ordinarily will spit. Now, I'm not saying you big up a big one and properly spit, but there will be this putting forth of moisture from your lips. It's very interesting that in Isaiah 6 and many verses in Proverbs that speaks of lying lips, the lip of truth, lips are used as a metonymy for the whole speech process. Tongue is spoken of, lying tongue, but again and again, lips is used as a metonymy for the whole speaking process. But alas, there are many men who omit the use of lips when they speak. Listening to some men and watching the way in which they pour out rivers of indistinct speech, one would think they had received professional training in a school for ventriloquists. Now, you know what the ventriloquist does, don't you? He locks his jaw, his lips never new, and he talks on his throat. Now, my lips are not moving, and the only way I can say lips and not make my lips move, I substitute a T. I've worked on this to find out how the ventriloquist does it, so I say lips, but context helps you to know what I'm saying. I am now speaking about lips without moving my lips, see? And you can do the same thing. And I think a lot of preachers, really, you can't say preachers, so you say teachers. You learn how to talk all everything. Now, that's a gross exaggeration. But often, and especially since I've had acute hearing loss, it's heightened my awareness. Few men speak using their lips as they ought to use them. And God uses lips for a metonymy for speech. So I say, give to the service of God all of your God-given faculties that you might speak distinctly and clearly. But then number six, God's given us the faculty of what I call speed or tempo. And each man must seek to ascertain what I would call our median efficient speed of speaking. Having determined that, we may speed up or slow down and yet still be within the range of being heard with understanding and with pleasure. You've got to find out your, quote, natural median speed. Again, the way God put you together in your mother's womb, your training, your education, your cultural influences will determine each man's median efficient speed. The speed that he ordinarily uses in speaking, and he can speed up from that, slow down from that, but if his median speed is where it ought to be, at his fastest speaking, he's still clearly understood because he's pronouncing and enunciating every word that he says. Just like you got every word that I said. And if he chooses for good and for wise reasons to slow down to an almost ponderous speed, you know he's doing it for righteous effect. Eh? Have I illustrated it? Now, my median speed is right here. But we can go upward 
and go downward and still be within an acceptable range. Some years ago, a dear brother and a dear friend, he even said I could name him in this lecture, and I said, no, my brother, I can't do that. He asked me for any help that I could give him with his preaching. And I said to him, my brother, you speak at a rate of a drugged elephant plodding through the thick underbrush in a game reserve in South Africa. Every single word was articulated. I'm exaggerating a little bit. I said, brother, I sit and I listen and I want to say, brother, get on with it. Get on with it. Get on with it, please. Well, bless God, he listened to the council and I listen to him now with pleasure. Content has not changed. It's still painstakingly exegetical homiletically arranged with real finesse, but just learning to find a median efficient speed that would be more acceptable to the average listener, I believe, has enhanced his preaching, I wouldn't dare say mathematically, how much. So, brethren, we've got to be aware of this matter of speed or temporal. If the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, right now, standing before you in dependence upon the God to whom we prayed at the front end of this lecture, I have the power to speak very slowly, or I have the power to speak very quickly. And that's a power God has given to me that must be employed to His glory, to the edification of men, and to the salvation of of sinners. I must be conscious I have that power and under the control of the Spirit to exercise it for those ends. But then the seventh element of this marvelous thing called our vocal powers is what I'm calling intensity. And this is a dimension of verbal communication that's hard to divine, but it's very obvious when we encounter it. And Dabney was most helpful to me in pointing out this aspect of our speaking capacity. The voice possesses a fourth power, I'm on number seven, by which it denotes its most forcible emphasis. This I denominate ictus. Now, I don't know whether the classic Latin rhetoricians use that term. They may have. But he says, I denominate ictus. It is not the same with loudness, for a syllable may be made relatively very loud without ictus. Nor is it the same with brevity, for a forcible ictus may be upon a long syllable. It is the sudden delivery of the breath upon the beginning of the syllable with an explosive force. This is effected by the very quick and spasmodic contraction of the muscles of the breast and larynx, ejecting the air upon the opening of the syllable, like the gases discharged from a firearm. But the current of vowel sound thus explosively begun does not always terminate as suddenly. It may be continued into a syllable both loud and long. This quality, ictus, is exceedingly expressive. 
It signifies in argumentative passages the highest dogmatic certainty and in emotional, that is emotional passages, the most vehement, sudden, and determined passions. The orator, the preacher, therefore, should take care how he expends this most peculiar means of expression upon insignificant statements or unimpressive emotions. The word made emphatic by dynamic force, elevation of pitch and ictus at once is his Olympic thunderbolt. He should beware how he launches it. Let me try to illustrate it. Suppose I were to say in a given setting with respect to uh, a certain issue, I cannot and I will not yield on that point. No, I can say it loud. I cannot and I will not yield on that point. But if I say I cannot and I will not yield on that point, You see, the holding back before I say the word cannot, that's what he's talking about. That's what makes that scene. I saw that movie, it must be three decades ago, the old black and white original movie of Luther and where that actor stands there in troubles. Here I stand, so help me God. I can do no other. Ictus, all the way through that. Now, Pastor Dave's sister, Mary Jo, she uses this with the word perfect. When you fix some food that's just right, she doesn't say, oh, Dad, that was perfect. She says, oh, Dad, that was perfect. (laughs) And I'm sure if you got close enough, you'd get her spit. And she doesn't know it. She's a master of ictus. It's perfect. And just holding back before saying that, P and then letting it explode gives it that intensity. So, brethren, I've tried to identify these aspects of our speaking faculty, something given to us in God's creative wisdom and power. And I urge you, by way of application, to think of these seven elements of your vocal powers and ask yourself the question, Do I recognize and am I cultivating all these marvelous powers so that they will come to my aid naturally and serve me as I serve my Lord in the act of preaching? We must ask ourselves the question, who made us with the capacity to express these seven aspects of oral communication? who made us so that our ears can discern these differing dimensions and nuances of speech and to render proper intellectual and emotional responses to them. Now, I'm not suggesting that we enter our pulpits with a three-by-five card and a seven-point checklist and think of these things while we are preaching. No, rather... I'm urging you, as I will later on in the lecture, to engage in an honest evaluation of your present rhetorical strengths and weaknesses while outside the pulpit. Having done this, 
I'm urging you to make conscious endeavors to increase and maximize both your native and acquired strengths and labor to diminish and correct your native and acquired weaknesses. Since we live in the advent of recorded sermons, make yourself listen to yourself with these things in mind and open to honest self Criticism. Periodically, I still do this after preaching for 58 years. Now, is it a humbling exercise? You bet your boots it is. But doesn't your Bible, as well as my Bible, say, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble? Dabney has wisely stated the issue this way. Perpetual vigilance is the only condition of right rhetorical action. We can fall into bad rhetorical patterns and listening to ourselves can be a wake-up call and cause us to say, oh my, I've got to work on that area. Get a discerning brother with whom you have a deep and secure friendship to help you in this process of self-criticism. Now, having sought to address the relative importance of our vocal powers, the moral necessity of our responsibilities in connection with our vocal powers, and the various elements of those powers, we come in the fourth and final place to consider what I am calling practical guidelines for the regulation and cultivation of our vocal powers. First of all, general counsels concerning the use of the voice. Number one, avoid all vocal affectations. Such affectations are an indication either of a weak mind or possibly an impure motive. When people listen to affected speech, they become conscious that the speaker is altogether too conscious of his words. Their minds are unable to receive the thought carried in the words because they are so distracted by this man who is so determined that he is going to pronounce all of his consonants and all of his vowels that he speaks funny. Again, that's verbal caricature, but you get the idea. So we must avoid anything that smells like affectation as we seek to improve in the area of our vocal apparatus. Listen to Spurgeon. When you do pay attention to the voice, take care not to fall into the habitual and common affectations of the present day. Apparently, from other things I've read in Spurgeon, uh, preachers were developing a preacher's tone that was totally unnatural to their normal speaking voice. And he talked about people who didn't discover that the nose was made to breathe through, not to speak through. I mean, he, uh, Spurgeon really went downtown on that. This matter of affectation. This affectation is not confined to Protestants, but the Abbe Milou uh, remarks, everywhere else, men speak. They speak at the bar, not where you get a drink, but where lawyers argue their case, and the tribune in politics, 
but they no longer speak in the pulpit, for there we only meet with a factitious and artificial language and a false tone. This style of speaking is only tolerated in the church because, unfortunately, it is so general there. Elsewhere, it would not be endured. What would we think of a man who should converse in a similar way in a drawing room? He would certainly provoke many a smile. Some time ago, there was a warder at the Pantheon, a good sort of fellow in his way, who in enumerating the beauties of the monument adopted precisely the tone of many of our preachers and never failed thereby to excite the hilarity of the visitors who were as much amused with his style of address as with the objects of interest which he pointed out to them. A man who has not a natural and true delivery should not be allowed to occupy the pulpit from thence at least. Everything that is false should be summarily banished. So in working on these things, brethren, avoid anything that approaches affectation. Secondly, this is general counsel, correct all vocal distractions where possible. Some things in your vocal mannerisms may be very natural to you, but they may well be naturally irritating or distracting vocal mannerisms to others. And since we are preaching for maximum edification, we will identify those things that we're doing naturally, but are naturally irritating to others. The effects of sin have penetrated the totality of our humanity. The result is there are kinks in all of our faculties, including our vocal faculties. And it's both our privilege and our responsibility in dependence upon God to work out those kinks to the end that we may have a maximum measure of usefulness in the preaching of the Word of God. Third general counsel, cultivate sufficient volume so as to be heard commandingly and comfortably by everyone in the place where you are speaking. We're back to 1 Corinthians 14, 9. Unless you utter from the tongue words easy to be understood, fundamental to that is sufficient volume. Emphasize the fact that preaching is an exercise in public speaking. I emphasize that it is an exercise in public speaking which is different from pillow talk, table talk, and parlor talk. When you're lying in bed, your wife's ear is 12 inches away. You want to talk pillow talk. That's perfectly appropriate to use your voice God gave you a voice for pillow talk. When Adam and Eve in that beautiful scene in Milton's Paradise Lost describes Adam and Eve's wedding night with the petals falling down, it's beautiful. If you can't read that and get all excited, you're just a dodo. Something, something's died in you. But when Adam spoke to Eve, he didn't holler at her. He spoke pillow talk. Talk softly. Sin had not entered any part of his God-created humanity. There was a place for appropriate pillow talk. 
There's a place for toy table talk. When you're gathered around the table leading family worship, you're not speaking to 200 people. Don't scare the liver out of your kids by speaking like you were. And then there's parlor talk. When a few more people are gathered and the volume must be increased a bit. A bit. But when you stand in the pulpit, you are engaging in an act of public speaking. And one of the things I am persuaded keeps men from cultivating their vocal faculties is they say, well, I don't want to appear unnatural. I go back to that distraught woman. When she's in the home, there's no fire, there's no disruption, and she's speaking to her children and ordering her household, she has a certain voice. But when she's outside that home and the house is on fire and one of her children is inside, she now has an emergency voice. And if someone were to come and say, oh ma'am, don't you know you're speaking unnaturally? I would justify her turning around and slapping them in the face. She said, I'm speaking in a way commensurate to the situation And with the God-given faculty to do it. Well, brethren, we need to get freed from any notion that it's a matter of histrionics and importation of the theater and the rest. That when we are engaged in preaching, we are engaged in an act of public speaking. Which should bring into its service the full dimension of all of our vocal powers many of which in pillow talk and in parlor talk would not be appropriate. But they are appropriate for the circumstance of the pulpit. And then fourthly, seek to cultivate a variety of tone, pace, intensity, and of volume. I was listening to a preacher this week, marvelous content, But in the purely middle-range, didactic part of the sermon, he was intense and he was loud. And he's a preacher whose voice goes up when he gets intense. And I wanted to say, brother, you're just teaching me. You're not screwing the word into my conscience by close and lively application. Save your intensity for that part of the sermon. It was pure didactic. So by the time he got to the application, he had nothing more with which to impress my heart by way of my hearing aid and my cochlear implant. He'd expended it all in the purely simple didactic. It would be like me maintaining this kind of intensity from the beginning to the end in purely didactic material. Well, when I got something that I want to really impress upon, what do I got left? Nothing. And what do you have left in your response to that? Nothing. So, brethren, I urge you, consciously cultivate a variety of tone, of pace, of intensity, and of volume. Listen again to Spurgeon. Some men are loud enough, but they're not distinct. Their words overlap one another, play at leapfrog, or trip each other up. Distinct utterance is far more important than wind power. Do give a word a fair chance 
do not break its back in your vehemence or run off its legs in your haste. Isn't that beautiful imagery? It is hateful to hear a big fellow mutter and whisper when his lungs are quite strong enough for the loudest speech. But at the same time, a man let a man shout ever so lustily, he will not be heard unless he learns to push his words forward with due space between. To speak too slowly is miserable work and subjects active-minded hearers to the disease called the horrors. It is impossible to hear a man who crawls along at a mile an hour. One word today and one word tomorrow is a kind of slow fire which martyrs only could enjoy. (laughs) Excessively rapid speaking, tearing and raving into utter rant is quite inexcusable. It is not and never can be powerful except with idiots. For it turns what should be an army of words into a mob and most effectually drowns the sense in floods of sound. Occasionally one hears an infuriated orator of indistinct utterance whose impetuosity hurries him on to such a confusion of sound that at a little distance one is reminded of Lucan's lines. Her gabbling tongue a muttering tone confounds, discordant and unlike to human sounds. It seemed of dogs the bark, of wolves the howl, the doleful screeching of the midnight owl, the hiss of snakes, the hungry lion's roar, the bound of billows beating on the shore, the groan of winds among the leafy wood and burst of thunder from the rending cloud. Twas these, all these in one. It's an infliction not to be endured twice. To hear a brother who mistakes perspiration for inspiration, tear along like a wild horse with a hornet in his ear till he has no more wind and must needs pause to pump his lungs full again. A repetition of this indecency several times in a sermon is not uncommon, but is most painful. Pause soon enough to prevent that (sighs) which rather creates pity for the breathless orator than sympathy with the subject in hand. Brethren, work at cultivating a variety of tone, of pace, intensity, and of volume. Fifthly, cultivate distinctness of enunciation and correctness of pronunciation. Enunciation means that every syllable is going to get due worth as it comes out of your mouth. Pronunciation has to do with putting accents in the right place. And then, it's interesting, you have one master in Israel saying, if you take care of the consonants, the vowels have their own sound, they'll take care of themselves. Then you come to another one, he says, whatever you do, give the vowels their full sound and the consonants will fall in place. Now, why do you have that difference of opinion? Because they're both right. We want to pronounce all of the consonants and we want to pronounce all of the vowels. They're not vowels, V-O-W apostrophe S, they are vowels. They have an E. 
It's not the cardinal, C-A-R-D apostrophe L. It is the cardinal point, cardinal, three syllables. And if we learn to give them their due weight, then our pronunciation will be clear, discernible, and even pleasant, and hopefully, even the way we speak will be didactic to our people. Because remember, thought is embodied in words. And words can only properly convey thought from one mind to another when they are clearly understood. And to have them clearly understood, they must be distinctly pronounced. So brethren, we're back to some of the most fundamental issues in a sound theology of speech. I quote Spurgeon again. He writes, We are bound to use every possible means to perfect the voice by which we are to tell forth the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Take great care of the consonants. Enunciate every one of them clearly. They are the features and expression of the words. Practice indefatigable indefatigably till you give every one of the consonants its due. The vowels have a voice of their own, and therefore they can speak for themselves. In all other matters, exercise a rigid discipline until you have mastered your voice and have it in hand like a well-trained steed. You see, no thought of just saying, oh, well, I'll just trust the nature and ask God to help me. No, Spurgeon is giving this proper emphasis upon our responsibility. And then Dabney comes along and he says, while he observes due accent and emphasis, he must give space for the distinct enunciation of both the vowels and consonants of all unaccented syllables. And then he goes after the tendency that he observed for a, a, an erosion of the English language because of the way people pronounce the words. Well then, having given that general counsel very quickly, some specific suggestions for continuous vocal culture. I would urge you, brethren, to consider before God whether it would be a good and a wise thing to give 15 minutes a day for specific voice culture. Reading out loud. Use a tape recorder. Listen to yourself. Take a book that you're reading, whether it's a theological book or whether... Uh, it's something lighter than that and determine to read several pages out loud and seek to read it exegetically, emphasizing the key words when the author wrote, if he's a writer worth his weight at all, he's crafting with words concepts that he wants you to grasp when you pick up the book and turn to that page. Try to discover what are the words that the author wanted me to feel in a particular way, something of their weight. And how can I read it with tone, with volume, with pacing, with ictus, 
How can I bring all the faculties of this marvelous capacity of human speech to bleed from that paragraph everything I can possibly bleed from it? And then when you think you've done that, then you pick it up again and say, now I'm going to read it with different nuances and see if different meaning comes to me. And read it two or three times placing different emphases as you read it. What are you doing? Brethren, until your ear can hear the tremendous capacities of your voice, you'll never labor effectively at cultivating the full range of the use of your voice. Again and again, when I've worked with men on this, I've said, look, your ear has got to hear these distinctions. Now, Will you please speak as, bring your voice down as low as you can bring it. You're speaking of a somber issue. And lo and behold, they found they could do that. And their ear heard something coming out of here. They didn't know was there. It's like a man who's labored all his life to play his violin well. The problem is, there's only one string on his violin. And he plays some tunes very well. He's really mastered the violin his one-string violin, and you come along and say, Sir, that instrument can make even more beautiful music if you add three strings. It's made to have four strings. And you put the strings in and tighten them up and tune them, and lo and behold, he said, Look at the music coming out of this same violin. I thought it had reached its full capacity with the one string. And I've seen that happen with men with their voices. Some with that high-pitched, strident voice, they didn't realize they could bring it down. Some, as I mentioned, my dear brother, who was like the drugged elephant going through the tall grass in a, an animal preserve in South Africa. I use that analogy because I've seen them. And lo and behold, they find, hey... I can speak at a more rapid speed and I don't come to pieces and I'm still able to hold my thoughts together. So brethren, I urge you, I can't bind your conscience, but I plead with you to consider before God whether 15 minutes of specific voice culture every day might be a discipline you ought to engage in. Then, secondly, if you're not engaging in some good cardiovascular exercise regularly, do it, brethren. Spurgeon said, you men with narrow chest, go down to the basement of the college and use the dumbbells. That was his counsel to his students. And he said, learn, learn to speak with your shoulders back like singers do, with your both feet planted. Get some good cardiovascular exercise that causes you to use your lungs and then practice increasing your lung capacity. Do you know you can do that? I'll let you in on the little secret. I do it by taking a, a relatively short hymn and seeing if I can sing the whole verse through with one breath. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. When I first started doing it, I couldn't do it. 
I just worked on it and lo and behold, I was able to increase the lung capacity. And what you're doing at the same time, you're learning how to control with your stomach muscles and your diaphragm how much air you need to let out to articulate something. Sometimes we let out more than we need, and that's why we don't have reserve. So, brethren, I'm just urging you, God's given you these faculties. Engage in some cardiovascular exercise, practice increasing your lung capacity, and now my real heresy. If you're ministering to a relatively small congregation in a small building, do not use voice amplification. The exception would be if you have an unusually acoustically dead little building. Acoustical tile on the ceiling, rugs on the floor, drapes on the wall, cloth on the seats, Those things are all acoustic robbers. I mean, they rob sound. And when you bump the molecules out of your mouth, they're like ravenous beasts. And they just, and they consume them. So if you've got such a building, you may need some voice assistance. But otherwise, brethren, you see what happens to young preachers? They immediately go into preaching situations where they've got a microphone. And so therefore, when they see someone on the back row in a building like this, that is not, it's median in terms of acoustical liveliness. They don't say, I must speak in such a way as to project my voice to the back row. You see, I must speak in such a way, where's the, where's the pitch? Right here. I must speak in such a way as to project to the back row. I must speak in such a way as to project to the middle rows. I must speak in such a way as to project to the back row. I've not gone up like I'm hollering, like I'm shouting, but I'm giving more vocal energy to my voice. And you see, men never develop the capacity that they have because the microphone has taken over for them. So that there's been a great restriction of how they cultivate this. Then you would learn how you give a stage whisper and still project it to the back row rather than a stage whisper that only the people on the front two rows can hear unless they're right under a speaker. So I can't pontificate, brethren, but at least I can plead with you to consider this. And then if God gives you some opportunity like our brother John to go out in the street corner and preach, you've got something with which to preach. And you're not going to have a sore throat and lose your voice for a week because you've been exercising and using this marvelous faculty to the full. Well, my concluding exhortation is this. Don't spare yourself the real labor of fully engaging all the faculties connected with an effective use of your vocal powers. By this, I mean the following bodily parts and functions. Your stomach muscles, diaphragm, tongue, teeth, and lips. I'm so thankful I cut my preaching teeth on the street corner. And I would preach as an 18-year-old kid, not until my voice went, but until my stomach muscles cramped. I mean, literally, they would cramp. And then I'd step aside and one of my buddies would step in the circle and he'd preach till his stomach muscles cramped and then I'd step back in. I'm so grateful that God mercifully took me in hand. I had no one to give me counsel. I could have ruined my voice in that setting. 
But, and my dear 96-year-old mother, when I visit her, said, Oh, Al, I'm so glad your voice is still fresh like it was when a young man, when I hear these older preachers and they're all gravelly and they've just got a little bit of voice left. She's so thankful her sonny, her Albert, still has his speaking voice. Then, brethren, welcome the input of competent critics and engage in the practical disciplines essential to continue to make progress in vocal efficiency. For some of you, and I've given this counsel on more than one occasion, you may want to make a minor investment to secure the help of a professional speech instructor. In colleges near you, they will often have someone who has advanced degrees in speech therapy, and they can often be of help enabling you to identify what you're doing that you shouldn't do and what you're not doing that you ought to do. But in all of this, brethren, remember what our goal is, giving ourselves wholly to these things that at the horizontal level our progress may be manifest unto all and at the higher level that God will be glorified, our people edified, and sinners converted. Let's pray together. Our Father, how we thank you that we are not like the brute beast, the dog that barks, the dolphin that squeals, the cat that purrs. We marvel that you have made us men in your image. You are the speaking God. And you have given us this marvelous faculty. And oh, how we pray, Lord, we may appreciate it, that we may, by your grace, seek to cultivate and train it all to the end, that your word coming through us may have maximum usefulness with the blessing of the Holy Spirit. So we ask, seal these things to our hearts. And give us grace to live out and to work out the implications of them. We plead in Jesus' name. Amen.